want to grab your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, we will be looking at uh, that text this morning. As you are turning there, let me just uh, say first of all to our guests, we are glad you're here and we hope you will stick around after services and let us get to know you and you get to know us just a bit better. And I want to invite uh, all of you next week to worship out on the lawn. We're going to move this outside. Uh, no Bible class next week. And I want to invite you to get here just a little bit early, maybe between 10.15 and 10.30, so you can stake your claim out on the lawn here. Uh, but we will be having worship outside uh, next week. Uh, we, again, have all of the equipment, uh, courtesy of having to be flexible due to COVID and all that. And so we are, uh, we have everything, and it's just a matter of uh, kind of setting up. And uh, we also want to invite you to be our guest for lunch uh, next week as well. Following service, we're going to be grilling burgers and dogs. And uh, members, uh, you're welcome to bring a side or a dessert for that event. Worship outside next Sunday morning. And uh, hopefully you weren't disappointed if you showed up this morning for that. Um, but here we are. And so Mark chapter 16. We have been this year walking step in step with Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And we arrive this morning at the climax of Mark's gospel. Mark 16. Let's read verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the true and living God. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought, uh, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and... Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let us pray. Father God, as we stand at the empty tomb this morning, we pray that you would give us enlightened eyes to see and dug out ears to hear the good news of the resurrection of Christ. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. The final step that we take in Mark's gospel is to the empty tomb. And we stand at the empty tomb, and we notice... The response by a few of the disciples of Jesus. 
Mark concludes his gospel not only with the empty tomb, but with bewilderment and fear. And I believe that what is communicated here is that God astonishes people with the empty tomb. That there is an appropriate response of reverential awe and respect of the God who raises the dead. And it confronts us with another question, and that is what is our response to the empty tomb? What is your response to the empty tomb? Mark is surprisingly brief in his report of the resurrection. His aim seems to be mainly to describe the effect of this event on the disciples. And so what he puts front stage is, again, the bewilderment and the astonishment of these disciples of the women. You see, that's who the witnesses were, the first witnesses were of the empty tomb. Their names are recorded for us in verse 1, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. This is a reiteration, a a repetition by the uh, gospel writer, by Mark. You see back in chapter 15 in verse 40 and also in verse 47, he's already given us the names of these women who were present at the crucifixion and who had witnessed the burial, and now it's these same women who show up at the tomb. They are on the scene. They are present to see that the tomb is open and empty. They are eyewitnesses to this. Now, the law required two or three eyewitnesses to corroborate the testimony uh, in court. Well, Mark gives us three names. That there, he tells us there were three women who were there, specifies them again by name. However, the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. And the sentiment concerning women in the ancient Near East and the Jewish people were part of that context. The sentiment concerning women was uh, very low. Did not have a high estimation of women. Women were the, uh, they were the ones who were on the low rung of the social ladder in that day. And let me just say that those who think that America is somehow a uh, sexist or misogynistic nation need only spend a minute in the ancient Near East or even today in the Near East. The condition of women then and even uh, today in the Near East uh, was not good. Uh, They were looked down upon. I know, and let me just say here, uh, it's not perfect here in this country. It's never been perfect because this goes all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And a part of the curse is that women will desire to be over the man and the man will rule harshly the woman. That's the result of the curse. Uh, the, the harsh autocratic rule of men, toxic masculinity, if you will, and toxic femininity are the results of the curse. And only in Christ and through the gospel is the curse undone and overturned. That's the, that's the potency, the power of the gospel message that we have, that it even touches right down to gender relationships. But getting back to the text, uh, the the first witnesses to the empty tomb were the women. And what's fascinating is this can actually strengthen 
the truth of the narrative. It is true, later accounts, uh, Luke records some, Matthew as well, uh, later accounts uh, provide male testimony. So why include the women if you've already got that? Unless the women were really there, and they were. And they truly were the first witnesses of the empty tomb. All four Gospels record this. All four Gospels say it was the women who were there, who were the first ones that came early to the tomb. And they became the first evangelists of the resurrection, if you will. So we see the witnesses to the empty tomb. And we're going to see here in verses 3 and 4 the fact of the empty tomb. The women on the way are talking about the, the large stone. Who's going to roll away the stone for us? You see, even though the sun is beginning to rise, these women are still living under the darkness of the cross. Jesus had died, and he was buried. They had seen both of those events. They don't yet know that he's been risen. They don't know that yet. That's coming. But on the way... Again, they're wondering, who's going to roll the stone away from the tomb? Their worry, their perplexity about the situation is due to the fact that they're still living in the darkness of the cross. And so they're expecting trouble. They're expecting difficulty and, and a challenge. But when they come to the tomb, they find that their fears and their worries were unfounded they find that the difficulty doesn't exist because the stone had been rolled back. And in fact, the way that this is uh, recorded, it's as if it, the, the large stone would be on a track. It's as if that large stone had been taken off the track and was now laid aside. That kind of power only God could have provided. And it is instructive, I think, just to pause here for a moment and notice what a the symbolism that's that's couched in this narrative and, and how it relates to us as Christians. You see, many people, but uh, perhaps even some Christians, are often oppressed by the troubles that they imagine in the future. They're often downcast because they anticipate evil in the days ahead. And yet when they come to the time that they anticipated trouble or difficulty, what many people find and what not a few Christians find is that that fear or that trouble or that challenge has been removed. The stone, if you will, has been rolled away. A large portion of our anxieties, brothers and sisters, arise from things that never really happen. We look forward to the journey to heaven, but we also look forward and we anticipate any number of possibilities. Well, what if this happens? Or, or what if that were to occur? Or perhaps this might happen. What about... And we have all these different possibilities that arise as we journey our way toward heaven. And we conjure up any number of things. We imagine. Our imaginations can run wild with the number of difficulties and troubles and obstacles and challenges that we may face along the way. And if that's not enough, we know about the trouble that each day has with it. But then we're mentally carrying with us the troubles for tomorrow as well. And again, what we find very often 
is when we get to that particular time when we had anticipated trouble, our doubts and our worries were baseless. All that anxiety was groundless. The things that we had to be alarmed about really aren't that alarming. The thing we most dread never comes to pass. We need a more practical faith. A faith that believes that we shall never be forsaken. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's the word of our God and the word of our Lord. We need to go forward boldly. The Proverbs talks about how the righteous are bold as lions, and yet often we find ourselves just like the simpleton or the fool behind locked doors because there's a lion in the road. Not realizing that that lion has been chained, has been bound. It's not unlike, you know, you come home, and it's dark, it's late, and you come inside, and every shadow is an intruder. That, 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 there's a, that looks like a, a person standing in the corner, and you turn on the lights, and ah, it's the coat rack. That's what it's like. The thing we most dread, the thing we most fear, turns out to be nothing at all but a shadow. The only way we can live that way is because of the light of the resurrection of our Lord. He is not here, is what the angel says. That is a definitive statement concerning the tomb in which Christ was buried. That it was empty that Sunday morning. A question every person must answer. Each one of us, every person watching online, you must answer this. How did it get that way? How did it get that way? If we approach the world through a naturalistic worldview, where everything must, ha must have a, a naturalistic explanation, that, that all there is is this material universe, well, we can conjure up any number of explanations. And many people have tried. Going all the way back to the very beginning, what's the first alternative theory to the empty tomb? Do you remember? Mark records, or Matthew records it for us in Matthew chapter 28. It's the report that is given to the guards. Say that his disciples stole the body. There it is. There's your first naturalistic explanation. Is that Jesus' disciples stole his body. The problem is, when you subject not only this, but every alternative theory to internal critique, it is found to be inconsistent with the historical data. What do I mean? Jesus' disciples stole the body. His disciples had neither the resources nor the inclination to do that. First of all, these are simple fishermen. And they're going to go up against a Roman guard? These simple fishermen are not trained to kill, but those Romans sure are. And if you want an example, an illustration, that shows that these simple fishermen could no more take a life than anything else, just go to the scene in Gethsemane where Peter, one of, the, one of the disciples, pulls the sword looking to take off the head of the high priest's servant and only gets the ear. They are not trained for war. They do not have the resources to go up against the Roman guard. And they don't have the inclination to do this. Where do we find the disciples after Jesus has died and is buried? They're behind locked doors. They're scared to death. They're terrified. Again, they have neither the resources nor the inclination to go and steal the body. 
inconsistent. Well, maybe, maybe Jesus' enemies, someone may say, his enemies stole the body. But then, again, you evaluate this, and why would they do that? The enemies want Jesus to stay dead. The, the Jewish opponents of Jesus, they want to wait until the fourth day so they can drag that body out and say, see, he's still dead. He's a false prophet. Why would they steal it and hide it? The body, I mean. And the Romans, well, they're the ones charged with guarding this thing. And to fall asleep or, or to lose the body would mean off with your head. No, why would they steal it and hide the body? doesn't make any sense. Some say, this was a popular theory years ago. It, it may show up from time to time. Someone may say, well, Jesus, he didn't really die on the cross so much as he just kind of passed out, went unconscious, called the swoon theory of years past. He merely passed out, went unconscious, and in the coolness of the tomb, he was uh, revived. He, he uh, came back to consciousness. This is just as absurd as anything. You work through thinking through this, and here's Jesus who has been scourged by the Romans, beaten to a bloody pulp, and even if we assume, okay, fine, maybe he didn't die, even though the data says he did die, assuming for the sake of argument that he didn't really die, he just went unconscious, well, now you have a, uh, a Jesus who's been buried for three days, weakened, bloodied, dehydrated. He's got to not only wriggle out of those burial cloths somehow, but now he's faced with a challenge alone of moving aside this very large stone. And then even assuming, even assuming all that happens, and he's somehow able to get out of his own volition, he shows up to his disciples, bloodied, beaten to a pulp, and says, follow me? Not much of a Messiah that I want to follow. No, the facts of history, and the primary fact of history, that Jesus really did die on the cross, pulls the rug out from underneath that swoon theory that he just passed out on the cross. Others say it was mass hallucination. Now, the disciples, they, they just hallucinated all this. First of all, hallucinations don't work that way. They are very individual. Suppose I were to hallucinate something, I would be the one who saw it, not you. And even if you're uh, very close, a, a couple, say that the Hairstons here, if Jack were to hallucinate something, Carolyn, she can't see that, even though they've been married years. Hallucinations don't work that way. And by the way, it's not just the 12. We have over 500 eyewitnesses that say, I saw him after the resurrection. And by the way, if it was just a hallucination, just all these disciples running around saying, I saw the resurrected Lord, all the enemies have to do is produce the body. No, nope, nope, you guys are crazy. And, and that's the other thing. You don't have the factors that are necessary. The disciples demonstrate none of the symptoms, none of the mental disturbances that would be necessary for them to hallucinate. Granted, yes, they are fearful, but just because you're afraid doesn't mean you're going to hallucinate. One after the other after the other, all of the natural, naturalistic explanations fall flat. They don't work. They don't fit. They don't square with all of the data of history and everything that we know. A naturalistic worldview simply cannot explain the empty tomb. 
And quite frankly, we don't want any naturalistic explanation to do that. Because if we can naturalistically explain the empty tomb, then there really is no resurrection, is there? And if there is no resurrection, well, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15. The Corinthians are very confused about the, the nature of resurrection and the nature of reality itself. And, and in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12, Paul writes there, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Listen closely, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, as one writer put it, Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection. If Jesus was not resurrected, he's not Lord, and that means he can no more save me than he can condemn me. He can no more save any one of us than he can condemn any one of us. And if there is no resurrection, Paul will say later on in uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, let us eat, drink, and be merry, or tomorrow we die. In other words, go ahead and drive the morality bus off the cliff. That's what makes uh, some of the uh, billboards that uh, skeptical folks, atheist folks will put up from time to time so comical. Be good for goodness sake. Says who? Because quite frankly, how can you have morality if there is no supreme moral authority? Be good for goodness sake? How do you even define good without God? Well, you know, we, we just want to be decent human beings. Okay, right. But in some cultures, they love their neighbors. In other cultures, they eat their neighbors. Now, which do you prefer? And that's really what it boils down to, is mere preference. And what if what I prefer conflicts with what you prefer? Who's to determine which good, so-called, is really good? This is what makes the resurrection of Jesus Christ so significant, so important, is that without the resurrection, Christ is not Lord. But because Christ was raised from the dead, he is Lord. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the Christ. He is everything he claimed to be. And since Christ is Lord, we can be good for his sake. And so, again, looking at the angel's proclamation, he has risen. The only explanation for why the tomb was found open and empty, the only explanation that fits with all the historical facts is an explanation that factors in a supernatural worldview. That there is more to this world than meets the eye. We are not just material machines, uh, sacks of so much fluid, mostly water. Our, our brain processes are, is, is not just 
chemicals fizzing away, but that we, while having a physical body, are also a spiritual being having a soul. That angels exist. And that, most importantly, God exists. And indeed, it is God who raises the Son through the Holy Spirit from the dead. It is God the Son who came near. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us for a time. And according to his human nature, he died on the cross in our place for our sins. And now notice, to say that Jesus died, that's a, that's a statement of history. But then to go further and say Jesus died for sins, now that's theology. And that's what we say. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. And after three days, God the Father raised the Son according to the Holy Spirit and through that declared him to be the Son of God with power. This is Paul in Romans 1 and verse 4. God really did raise Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, what's our response to this? What is your response to this? I think it ought to begin with for these women, these disciples of Jesus, where they began. Notice again verse 8. They went out, they fled from the tomb. For, let me tell you why, trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. We see that the reaction of these first disciples to the awesome power of God is reverential awe. They are seized with bewilderment and they're shocked with fear at what God has done in this world. Why is that? Well, it's because the inbreaking of God's resurrection power is, first of all, bewildering. It is astonishing. And especially if you are sitting here this morning, or if you're watching via uh, YouTube, Just think, think it through. If you're starting from a, a naturalistic, or, or if you've been leaning into the naturalistic worldview, and you begin to see, according to internal critique, that it's, it's inconsistent, you're left with one of two choices. To, to continue with that, even though you know this is inconsistent. I can't make it reconcile. I can't make it fit with all the data. But, but I, I just don't want the other thing. Or you make the shift. And the shift is to adopt the supernaturalistic worldview that says, well, first and foremost, I'm, I'm the special creation of God. I, I have a soul. There are really angels and demons. And again, most importantly, God exists. And God sent God into the world. The Father sent the Son into the world. And then I was... Uh, we, we've got a 
a habit uh, each week. We'll take a, about a minute clip from each sermon, and we'll post that on YouTube. And every now and again, one of them gets traction. One did here recently. It's got over 1,000 views because we had a comment. Someone took issue with something. I said, it happens. That's, that happens. Okay. And so I replied. And then he responded. I replied. Response, reply. We went back and forth about four times. But one of the things that came up was I explained. I said, the son offered himself to the father without blemish through the eternal spirit. This is Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. That's what happened on the cross. Why, by the way, God must be triune. Why he must be three in one. There's but one God, but there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The whole Godhead works together to accomplish the gospel on the cross. He replied to me, and he said, so let me get this straight. God offered himself to God through God. I said, yes, that's, that's right. That's exactly it. Because the, fa- the, the Son offers himself to the Father through the Spirit. And in that way, accomplishes redemption. And when it comes to the cross, the Father raises the Son according to the Holy Spirit. God raises God according to God. God is the one who fully accomplishes the redemption and the salvation of people. Why salvation is not according to works, but according to grace. Why it is that it is not of yourselves that you are saved. It is a gift from God. And it is true that with the gospel comes joy, joy that God gives us through his spirit within us. Before there can be joy, my friends, there is first astonishment. There's first that experience of being just blown away, having your hair blown back by what God has accomplished in time, space, and history in order to accomplish human redemption, my redemption, your redemption. If, if, if we're willing to repent and believe the gospel. Let's commit this to prayer. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, is, and is to come. It is a stunning thing, an awe-inspiring thing that you have done in the cross, but also in what you have done in the empty tomb. They go together, one with the other. Standing at the tomb, This morning, Father, we are once again impressed by your power, your resurrection power. And I pray for those who are here, those who are watching online, I pray that they would know the power of his rising. That that they would know your resurrection power in your life, uh, in their life, according to your power, that they would experience moving from death to life. And those of us who move, that, that we would come to know new and deeper levels, the power of his rising, share in his suffering, and be conformed 
his death. Lord God, we pray all of this to the glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.